God, we thank you that you are the God who has spoken to us finally, fully, authoritatively in your word. God, we thank you for the sufficiency of the scriptures that we rest on them this morning. We trust this. God, we come humbly to your word. We pray that you might convict us and challenge us. Show us the areas that you want us to grow. Show us what it might look like, God, as a church to exercise the gifts of the Spirit, not for our glory, but for your good, for the sake of your body. We pray, God, that you help us to think hard this morning about what you're saying to us. Transform us by your Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said... Amen. So it's, we're hitting prophecy this morning, and I don't know what your experience of prophecy has been, but my experience has been this. I grew up, uh, got saved at about 17, was mentored by uh, a guy who'd grown up in a very conservative background, and I read a book pretty early on in my faith that I swallowed hook, line, and sinker that said that every single spiritual gift of the Spirit that was miraculous had ceased once we had our final Bible. And so I'd made it my personal vendetta to go and preach this good news that the gifts had ceased to everyone I found, found myself arguing with all these people about the fact that tongues were demonic and prophecy had ceased and all this kind of stuff. And I've got to tell you what, God humbled me quite significantly. Not only was it um, theologically arrogant, but theologically and biblically irresponsible to the text of God. I don't know where you find yourself at when it comes to prophecy. Maybe the most you've got for prophecy is uh, the, the weather app on your iPhone. You want it to be accurately predictive, right? Every single week. And I don't know about just you or me, but this week I've been very frustrated with the weather app on my phone because three days this week it said to me it was going to bucket down with rain so I didn't ride my motorbike to work. I caught the bus. It's about five times longer than riding. No rain. Next day, same thing. And so I'm frustrated with the false prophecy that comes from my iPhone app. Or, or, or maybe um, you, know, you, you want your doctor to be a little less prophetic. I went to the doctor this week to get a couple of moles checked out. And he said, oh, this one's precancerous. We're going to have to get rid of that one. And we're going to burn this one off. And so we got the dry ice out. And then he says to me, you'll be back. You'll be back. I'm like, how do you know? You'll be back. You've seen a lot of sun as a young as a young guy. I was like, okay. So he's like, pretty much, you're gonna have to come back every couple of years and get all these skin, this uh, sun damage burnt off with dry ice or cut out and all this kind of stuff. And I'm thinking, I don't want you to be that prophetic. Let's just be a bit more vague about this. Maybe you'll be back. There's good things for you in the future regarding your skin. And so today we're going to hit this topic of prophecy. What is it like? Can we use it? Is it around? Is it helpful? Is it dangerous? All that kind of stuff. But before we do that, I want to give a real quick overview on the gifts of the Spirit. I think I've bitten off more than I could chew this morning. I've got a lot to get through. I feel like this is going to be a bit of a lecture. But anyway, here we go. We call them spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts. And it's true. They are gifts that are distributed by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit. But it's not the Spirit alone who gives the gifts. The Father and the Son are also involved in the distribution of the gifts. In fact, if you go to Romans 12 and 1 Peter 4, there are two gift, uh, list gifts there. Gift 
lists in those chapters. And you will see there that it is God the Father who gives the gifts. Or you go to Ephesians 4, there's another list there. And it's Jesus who gives the gifts. You come to these verses that we just had read to us here. And in verses 4 to 6, you notice that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all mentioned. And so there is a Trinitarian nature to the giving of the gifts. But it seems like, at least here in 1 Corinthians 12, that the Spirit has the primary focus and role in the distribution and empowerment of these gifts. In verse 7, it says that they are manifestations of the Holy Spirit. That is, they are demonstrations of the Spirit's work in our lives. Or in verse 11, it says that the Holy Spirit apportions. That is, He assigns, He distributes, He gives the gifts according to His will. So He has a unique role in both the giving and empowering of all of the spiritual gifts, particularly in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, which is the largest section in Scripture on the gifts. So you could say that the reason that you are able to exercise the gift that you have, the reason that you even have that gift is because the Spirit is the source of that gift. He has given it. He has empowered it in you. Now, what about the gifts? There are so many questions about the spiritual gifts, and we don't have time to get through all of them. A number of those questions came through gospel communities at the start of this series, and I want to try and hit on a couple of them here. So the first question was, are these gifts natural gifts or are they supernatural gifts? And the answer is both. The vast majority of the gifts are natural gifts, and you could say that God has given you that gift in the way that he created you. He designed you. He's wired you a certain way. He's given you a certain personality. He's given you a certain disposition. He's given you certain talents in the way that he created you. That's no less a gift that you've been given than, say, the more supernatural gifts of the Spirit that you receive quite some time after you were born, like gifts of healing or tongues or prophecy. And so both, the gifts are both natural. Some of them have more a natural element to them. Some of them have more of a supernatural element to them. The next question is, are they temporary or are they permanent? And again, the answer is both. For the most part, nearly all of the gifts of the Spirit are permanent gifts. If you've been given a gift of leadership, Generally, that's because that is how God has wired you and made you. The Spirit empowers you for that, heightens that as you, you exercise that gift for the good of the church. But that's a permanent gift. It doesn't seem that the Scriptures suggest that that gift comes and goes. Your exercise of that gift may change and fluctuate, but it seems like those gifts are permanent and resident gifts, although not all of them function that way. Particularly, some of the supernatural gifts may not always be permanent resident gifts. And I think the gift of healing may be one that falls into that category. When you read through the gift list in 1 Corinthians, Paul starts talking about all of these people who have been given gifts, the prophet, the teacher, the apostle, and then he says, and gifts of healings. And so it seems maybe he thinks that there is not a resident person who has the gift to heal everyone every single time that he or she prays for healing, but that God occasionally and sporadically distributes gifts of healings. And so maybe not all of the gifts are permanent and resident. Some of them are temporary. Are they continuous or have they ceased? Now I've got to tell you, there is a raging debate around that question within 
the camp of Christianity who loves the Bible and loves Jesus. There are differences of opinion of whether or not the gifts are continuous, particularly the supernatural ones, or whether they have ceased when our Bible's closed. And as I mentioned earlier, I swallowed the, the second opinion hook, line, and sinker early on as a Christian. But I believe that all of the gifts of the Spirit continue, and maybe two of them don't function in the same way that they used to. And I think those two gifts are the gift of apostleship, and that may be an office, not a gift in and of itself, and the gift of prophecy to an extent. What I mean by this is the gift of apostle, the office of apostle, has a certain criteria to it. You have to have been an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus. So since there are no longer any more eyewitnesses, and the apostles have penned the scriptures for us, we don't expect that that gift, that office, will continue to perpetuate. In the same way that some of the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, spoke, thus says the Lord, and their word was authoritative and was penned as scripture, would say that prophecy like that doesn't continue anymore. But certainly... Um, apostolic gifting as in a a missionary or a church planter or some form of catalytic leader. If we define the gift of apostle in that way, yeah, that continues. If we define the gift of prophecy in the sense that God might bring a word of encouragement, a word of knowledge, then yes, I think prophecy exists in that sense. They may resemble the earlier gifts, but they're not identical to them. But by and large, outside of those two, I think all of the remaining gifts of the Spirit, miraculous and non-miraculous, continue today for the good of the church. And I'm going to give you some reasons why I think that's the case a bit later on. Do they vary in strength was another question that came in. And I think, yes, the gifts can vary in strength. There are people who might have the same gift. You might have the same gift as another person. And that gift operates in a more effective way in another person's life. Now that's just some gifts are used, are to be used in proportion with your faith. And so some gifts will be used in more effectiveness in certain people than they will be used in others. There may be gifted evangelists amongst us. And there are certain evangelists who seem quite effective in their giftedness and others who comparatively may not be as effective. Now I don't think that's reason to be jealous and compare. But all it says is that The gifts don't have a flat effectiveness as God pours them out. As the Spirit apportions and gives gifts, we use them faithfully as He's given them, and God brings the increase, and God blesses, and the Holy Spirit empowers. And so, yes, they can vary in terms of their strength. Well, what is the purpose of the gifts? Why have they been given? And we get a purpose statement there in verse 7 of chapter 12, and it is this. To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Why? For the common good, for the good of God's people, for the building up of the church. That is why the Holy Spirit distributes the gifts. If you read 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 as one section, one chunk, like it probably is, you'll see sandwiched between chapter 12 and chapter 14 is that very famous chapter on love. It's the climax, the high point of those three chapters. Because what Paul is saying is that central to the operation of the gift of the Spirit is that they are acts of love. That they are for the good of the building up of the church. And so the measure of a gift is not how spectacular it is or even how effective it is. But does it strengthen the church? Does it build up the saints? Does it serve other people? That's what Peter says in 1 Peter 4. He says, 
Each have received a gift to be used to serve one another. Or again, in uh, Ephesians 4 verse 10, Paul says this, And he, that's Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, purpose statement, to equip the saints for the works of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Your gift, whatever it is, is not given simply for you. Your gift is given so that you might use that gift for the good of others, for the edification of the church, for the strengthening of the brothers and sisters, for the sake of your gospel community, for the sake of your triplet, for the sake of this church. Your gift is given for others. See, in the end, the Holy Spirit is not interested in making individuals look better than other people or seem more spiritual than someone else. What the Holy Spirit is interested in is his bride, the church. And he wants to strengthen the church and build it up. Your gift is not for you. It is for your joy, though. It is for your joy. We're told in the Psalms that we're to serve the Lord with gladness, with joy. And that includes the gifts that he's given us. And so whilst it's not given for a selfish purpose, it is for our joy. And so often we know when we are, when we are serving the body, when we are using our gifts to build others up, there is often a deep sense of joy and passion and gladness as we do that. So it's not for your good personally. It is for your joy. It's for the good of the church. It's for the building up of the body. And so the gauge of an effective gift, again, is not how spectacular it is, but how it's used as an act of love to serve others and to build up the church. Now, just as a little side point here, if, as you read through all of the lists of the gifts of the Spirit in the New Testament, there's four of them, maybe five if you include two in, in 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. In all of those passages... The gifts are spoken of in the context of love and unity and the strengthening of the church. And so it seems to me it's such a shame that this issue is so divisive amongst Christians when God intended it to be for our good, to be something that unified us. Finally, last question. How do I, do I have a gift and how do I know I've got one? And the answer is yes. Everyone has a gift. Come back to verse 7 with me. Verse 7 of chapter 12, Paul says this, To each is given the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Or again in 1 Peter 4, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. The image that you get that Paul paints in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is that of a body. And as a body has different parts, different members to it, a leg and an arm, an eye and an ear and a mouth, and as, as a body has all of these different parts and members that are all distinct and different, but work together to achieve a purpose like walking, right? So the church has a diversity of gifts that are all used for the same purpose, which is unity. Everyone has a gift. There is not a single person in this room here this morning who loves Jesus, who does not have a gift of the Spirit that is used for the building up of the church. Every single one of you have something that you can do, a small part that you can play to strengthen the church, to build the church, to honor Jesus. 
So the next question is, well, how do I know if I've got one? How do I know what my gift is? And I think there's a number of ways that you can do that. Firstly, I think you need to pray. I think you need to ask other people to affirm the gifts that you have. Your gospel community leader, what, what do you think I'm gifted at? Maybe it's just looking for opportunities and just trying things. You see an opportunity there. There's a, an opportunity that arises to serve in kids or to serve on, on the worship team. You think, I'm going to give it a crack, give it a go. And that might be your gifting. God might, God might give you the gift to meet the need that is in the church. But I'm going to post a really helpful um, Tim Keller article on our Facebook page this week. He talks about three categories of assessment that might give you a clear idea of what your gift is. He talks about your affinity, the things that you're passionate about, the things that you love, the things that get you excited. He talks about your ability. Like you may be really passionate about music, but you're tone deaf and cannot sing at all, right? That's probably not the area for you to serve in. So your affinity, your passions, your desires, your abilities, your natural gifts, the things that you're good at, and finally, opportunities. And he says, as those three circles overlap at the very center, if there is something that hits a sweet spot there, that's probably your gift. Not always, but that's probably your gift. Your affinity, your ability, and your opportunity. And so if you're wondering, how, how has God given me a gift to serve here at Anchor? Then my suggestion is this week in your gospel community, say to the people of your group or in your triplet, what do you think? I'm keen to serve here at Anchor. What do you think my gifts are? Can we pray about this? Are there opportunities? Hit one of the staff and say, I'd like to serve. Because every single one of you has a gift to use in this church for the good of this church. At Anchor, we like to say, no one does nothing. No one does nothing. You've all got a part to play. So that's a very, very brief skim over of the spiritual gifts. And what I want to do now is dig in on the gift of prophecy. So we're going to hit prophecy today. Brian's going to hit tongues next week. And my aim here, and, and just to say this from the outset, is I don't think we've got this all figured out. Right, this the last couple of weeks, Brian and I have been sitting in the office and just going back and forth, sometimes for hours. Bibles open, commentaries on the table, podcasts. Like we've been going back and forth, thinking, praying, not arguing, but just vigorously debating things. Like this is a tough issue. There are so many different opinions on this. We don't claim to have it all figured out, but we've done a lot of hard work, and I hope this is clear. So let's go. Gift of prophecy. The gift of prophecy is a gift. It's in the list there in 1 Corinthians 12. So come with me to verse 28 of 1 Corinthians 12. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, gifts of healing, helping, administrating various kinds of tongues. Prophecy is also in the, the list in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 10. It's also in the list in Ephesians chapter 4. It's in the list in Romans 12 and it possibly, at least functionally, whilst not being named, is probably in the, gift, in the list in 1 Peter 4 as well. So it's in every single list of gifts we find in the New Testament. But what is it? What is prophecy? And I've got to tell you that there's a lot of debate around the definition of prophecy. Now, the reason it's so hard to find a good working definition of prophecy is because the Bible doesn't give us a nice two or three sentence definition of prophecy. What it gives us is examples of prophecy taking place and some instructions about how it ought to function for the good of the church. And so based on the examples and the instructions, we need to try and formulate 
a definition of prophecy. And so what I did, I just stole a whole bunch of other people's definitions, mashed them together to come up my own. So this is my definition of prophecy. It is something that God brings to mind. That is, a spirit-prompted utterance for encouragement, for strengthening, for correction. Sometimes it is predictive, but it doesn't always have to be predictive. It is non-authoritative, that it is subject to the authority of the apostles, the authority of the scriptures, and it is always to be tested against that benchmark of authority. So it's a spirit-prompted utterance for encouragement, for warning, for strengthening. It's for the good of the church. It's sometimes predictive, although not always, and it is non-authoritative. Right? That's my definition of Prophecy. Prophecy does not carry the weight of Scripture. Prophecy in the New Testament is not equal to the Bible in your hand. Now, some would suggest that it is. Some people suggest that New Testament prophecy is authoritative. That once the, the canon of the Scripture was closed, that the gift of prophecy no longer functions like it used to. And so the gift of prophecy has ceased, the gift of the apostles has ceased, and so we no longer expect that gift to function. But I want to suggest to you that the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament prophets are not equivalent to each other. Where is the seat of authority of the inspired word lie when we come to the New Testament? It always lies with the apostles. The apostles are the ones who speak authoritatively. The apostles are the ones who have penned scripture. And so when we come to what is equivalent, the Old Testament prophets who spoke as the mouthpiece of God are equivalent to the New Testament apostles who are the mouthpiece of God. So New Testament prophecy is very different from Old Testament prophecy. And so we need to have a different definition of how it works. And I want to show you in a couple of verses from the New Testament that New Testament prophecy does not carry the same weight and authority as your Bible. It is non-authoritative. So, you guys ready? I know this is hard work. I'm sorry. You have to think hard on a Sunday morning. So let's go. We're going to go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19. This is what Paul says about prophecy to the church in Thessalonica. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast to what is good. Now my question is, if Paul and if the church at Thessalonica thought that New Testament prophecy had the authority of Old Testament prophecy, Paul would never say something like that. He would never say, don't despise prophecy, and even more, he would never say, test the authority of it. He wouldn't say that. This is a church who has a low view of prophecy. And Paul has to say to them, don't despise that gift. Now remember, this is a church who received the word of the Lord with joy. In 1 Corinthians 2.13, it says that Paul says, You received our message as it is, not as words simply of men, but as the word of the Lord. So they had a category for apostolic authority. As Paul brought his message of the gospel, they 
They believed that. It was binding on their conscience. And yet they have a very different view of New Testament prophecy. So they see a big difference between those two things. Additionally, Paul says that it needs to be tested. You don't test the Bible. The Bible tests you. Additionally, Paul says that you test it and you will find that some things are good and to be received and some things aren't good and they're to be rejected. That it is non-authoritative, that it is not 100% correct all the time. So they had to test everything. They had to measure the prophecy. They had to measure the message. You notice there that they're not measuring the prophet. They're not measuring the office. They're measuring the message. They're weighing the validity of the message that the prophet has brought against the apostles' message and against their Old Testament scriptures to figure out whether or not this message is valid and true and good. And if it's not, it's to be rejected. If it's good, it's to be received. You see the same thing happen in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 29. I'm not sure if this one's on the screen, but Paul says almost an identical thing in verse 29. He says, Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. Paul has no category that New Testament prophecy carries the same weight of authority that his own words do. He says it needs to be weighed, it needs to be tested, it needs to be measured against the authority of my message. He'll say the same thing again in 1 Corinthians 14. So at the very end of this long, long section on the spiritual gifts of prophecy and tongues in particular, Paul says this about his apostolic authority and the gift of prophecy. 1 Corinthians 14, 37. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command from the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. See, the prophets in Corinth were subject to the Apostle Paul. Their word is subject to his apostolic authority. We see a similar thing happening in Paul's missionary journey. The, the final trek that he takes to Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 20, he's, he's with the, uh, the Ephesian elders, his brothers at the church in Ephesus, and they're praying and he's saying goodbye because he's probably never going to see them again. And he says this in, in Acts chapter 20, verse 22. He says, And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. So Paul feels called or compelled or convicted, whatever word you want to use there, that he needs to go to Jerusalem. And so he begins this journey. He farewells the church in Ephesus. And along the way, a number of prophets bring a message from the Lord for Paul. Firstly, in the, in the church in Tyre, it says this in Acts 21 verse 4. And then through the Holy Spirit... They were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And so as Paul visits the church here on his way to Jerusalem, the Spirit of God reveals something. We're not told what, and I realize the gift of prophecy isn't used here, but it seems the same function, a Spirit-inspired utterance, that the Spirit, through the Spirit, they are warning Paul don't go to Jerusalem, don't go to Jerusalem, don't go to Jerusalem. Now maybe it's that the Spirit has revealed to them what's going to happen to Paul. But however they've received that revelation, they've delivered it as a warning for Paul not to go. 
he still goes. He moves on to the next city. And in the city of Caesarea, another prophet comes to him by the name of Agabus. And in Acts 21 verse 10, it says this. While they were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound it around his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So here comes Agabus. He's received a prophecy. He's received um, maybe a vision, some forth telling of what's going to happen to Paul. And he comes and he demonstrates to Paul, this is what's going to happen to you. Paul still goes to Jerusalem. Now, is Paul's conscience bound by the words that these prophets bring to him? It seems that he's not. It seems that he is not disobeying Jesus by continuing to Jerusalem, even though a number of prophets have come and warned him. Now, how could that be if New Testament prophecy is authoritative, if it is the inspired word of God? Paul has to be disobedient to that word if he rejects it. Now, there's a whole bunch of debate about whether or not the prophets heard the wrong thing or um, they, they just interpreted incorrectly, whatever it looks like. The deal here is, though, that Paul is free because he is not bound, his conscience is not bound by New Testament prophecy. He has received what he feels a call from the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And so he concludes that based on these prophecies that have come to him, that they have revealed to him what is going to happen, but not that he shouldn't go. And so he continues to Jerusalem anyway. So I hope you can see that there is a consistent theme as you look at the gift of prophecy and how it's exercised and functions in the New Testament, that it is non-authoritative, that it is not binding on your conscience the way that the Scriptures are binding on your conscience. The Scriptures call us to do certain things and that has authority over us because this is the very inspired Word of God. A prophecy is different. It is not the inspired Word of God. It is something that the Spirit brings to mind in us that can be fallible and mistaken, but if delivered right, can be useful and helpful to the church. In some ways... It's actually quite similar in function to the gift of preaching. The gift of preaching is as much a spiritual gift as the gift of prophecy and of tongues and of healing, albeit slightly less supernatural, but it's still a gift of the Spirit. And all good preaching is Spirit-empowered and Spirit-enabled and Spirit-prompted preaching that falls in line with the Scriptures. But one with the gift of preaching can still preach error. I may be preaching error right now. You should go back to your Bibles and read. Has Matt got this right? Right. And so what I say does not carry authority and weight. I am not the guru. Alnaldo and Brian and Brad and the gurus, whoever stands on this platform, does not preach the authoritative word of God. We interpret it and deliver it to you and you measure it against what is written in this book because this is our final authority. And so it functions, I think, in, in the same way that the gift of preaching might function. Now, it needs to be acknowledged that not everyone agrees with that definition of prophecy. 
There are many who think that the gift of prophecy in the New Testament is coupled with the gift of the apostle that is a unique foundational gift in the church. They'll go to Ephesians 2.20 where Paul says that it is the, the apostles and the prophets that are the foundation of the church. Again, in Ephesians 3.5, there's another verse there that mentions that. Now, before you write them off as spirit-quenching fundamentalists who don't believe in the power of God, right? Before you do that, because it's tempting to do that, you need to read what these brothers and sisters are writing. Because they love Jesus, they love their Bibles, they know their Greek way better than I do, and they argue, some of them, quite convincingly for their position. So at some level, what I think is happening here is there's a wrestle over definitions. That's really what it comes down to. We're wrestling over definitions. If you want to have a definition of prophecy that says it is a foundational gift in the church that has ceased to function in the, new t- in the, the eras after the, the Bible was completed, but you still have a category for God using you by the Spirit to prompt you to say something to someone, for God revealing to you something that may be in the future or something that's hidden in someone's life, if you've still got a category for that happening, then I think all we're really doing is discussing labels here. A good friend of mine, uh, one, of, one of the brothers in our Acts 29 network in New Zealand, he calls prophecy, he's got a category for it all, he just labels it differently. He says it's supernatural providence. It's supernatural providence. It's God supernaturally intervening. He just wouldn't call it prophecy. And you know, I'm okay with that. Because the, f- the function, the category is still there. It's just the label that we give it is different. But when we talk about prophecy, there is always people who get nervous about the spiritual gifts. Now, why is it? Why do we get nervous when we talk about gifts like prophecy and tongues, word of knowledge, word of revelation? I think there's a few reasons why we get nervous. The first reason is we love the Bible. We believe that the scriptures are authoritative. We believe that Jesus is the final prophet, that in the past, according to Hebrews 1, God spoke to us many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, that God does not reveal anything more of himself than he has in Jesus through the scriptures. And we love this book. And so we're cautious because we don't want to undermine the authority of the Scriptures. We don't want to put anything in place that might mean that this is less important in our lives. Now, I don't think giving prophecy the type of definition and category and place in the church that I've just given undermines the Scriptures in any way. In fact, it upholds them above that gift. and We can exercise it under the authority of the Word. The second reason I think we get cautious and nervous about the gift of prophecy is because we've seen so much abuse of this gift in the past. I've personally seen it. I know many of you have personally experienced spiritual abuse at times of people who claim to bring a word from the Lord for your life. But just because we've seen a poor example of it or an abuse of the gift doesn't necessarily mean we just chuck it out. We would never do that with preaching. And there are plenty of people who preach bad, like it's barely even preaching, if I'm honest with you. It's bad, right? Now, just because there's bad versions of preaching doesn't mean we get rid of preaching altogether. 
Instead, what I think we need to do is exercise these gifts the way that Paul calls us to exercise them in the Scriptures. And so what I want to do now is give you a couple of examples that I've personally seen of prophecy that I think functions in a healthy way for the good of the church. The first one is a story I've shared in the past. It's a story of a good buddy of mine called Will who had a vision for our church. Back in the, um, the very early days when we first announced to our home church that we were going to leave, that I was going to resign from being a youth pastor there, and we were going to plant a church, we announced that. The first time we announced it was to our little Bible study group that met in our home in Mount Druitt. And our group decided at the end of the night that they wanted to pray for us. And so we all gathered around. They were praying for us. And my friend Will, at the very end of the night, I mean, he didn't, he didn't just download this on me. We kind of had to pray it out of him. He came and he said, you know what, I had, a, I had a vision during the prayer time. And what I saw very clearly was a city. And the city was, was in darkness. And in front of the city was a body of water. And in the sky was the sun. And it was reflecting off the water onto the city. And he said, I feel like what God was saying in that vision was that you're going to plant a church that reflects the sun to the city, that reflects Jesus to the city of Sydney. Now, it was such a vivid vision for him. I said, can you draw it? He said, yep. So he got out a pen, scribbled it on the back of a piece of paper, and he drew it. Now, I mistakenly took that vision as spiritual guidance as to the location of where we should plant our church. Because at this point, we were undecided on where we should plant. I, honestly, I spent the next week on Google Images and, and Google Maps searching for the picture that Will had drawn. I was like, no, no. I, I think I honestly scanned every harborside part of the city of Sydney. Nothing resembled the picture that he drew. In the end, I believe what that vision was for was for a reminder and an encouragement. We had just said to our church family that we were leaving, resigning, going to plant a church. We had no team, we had no money, we had no location, and we pretty much had no idea. And for me, that was a real sense of confirmation that, yes, I have called you to this. It was an encouragement to us. Secondly, I think it was a reminder that this is the type of church you ought to plant, a church that reflects Jesus to the city. Now, did Will's vision contradict Scripture? I don't think so. Did it have authority? Was it binding on our conscience? No, it wasn't. Even if I found the exact image of what he had drawn in a spot in Sydney, I don't think it necessarily meant that we had to plant a church there. Is it binding? No. Is it authoritative? No. Is it encouraging? Was it helpful? Yes. Let me give you another example. Um, this is one personally that, that, that I think the only time that I've personally experienced this. I remember having a conversation with someone from my church before our Sunday gathering. And I was talking to this person. And I felt a conviction to, to warn them of something. And I thought to myself, it was, it was a bit off. It wasn't really on topic of the conversation we'd been having. I thought, is that from God? I thought, no, nah, it can't be from God. I feel like anyone else who knew this person could probably say the same thing to them just based on what they knew of their life. And so I thought, it's just my logical brain. I'm, I'm thinking this through, and, and it feels natural to say that. I, thought, I just dismissed it. I didn't say it. Went into the gathering, sat through church, and the whole time through the message, through the singing, all of it had this nagging sense that I needed to go and warn this person of this thing. And so after the gathering, I put him aside. I said, you know what? 
as we were talking earlier, I just I felt that I ought to say this to you. I don't know if this is relevant, but here it is anyway. And at the time, it was a bit vague. It was a bit like, oh, maybe that was helpful. But later on, it was profoundly real. That warning was profoundly real for that person in their life. Now, was that authoritative? I don't think so. Was it helpful? I wish it was a bit more helpful in that person's life than it was, that they heeded that warning. Well, let me give you another example from a friend of mine, Steve Vasalo, who um, back in the days of MySpace was scrolling through MySpace and listening to post-hardcore as you did back in the early 2000s. And um, he stumbled across a profile of a friend of his and felt very strongly that the Spirit revealed to him that he ought to ring this guy and warn him that he was harboring bitterness in his heart. Steve was like, whoa, I haven't seen this guy for like two to three years. This is awkward. He felt kind of like there's a cost to this. Like what happens if this ruins my friendship with this guy if I ring him and, and say, man, I feel like God's put this on my heart to ring you and say you're harboring bitterness in your heart. Anyway, he, he plucked up the courage. He rang his mate. He told him what he felt God had said to him. And it turns out that this guy was just about to go and meet up with his ex-girlfriend who had slept with his best mate. And he was super angry about it. And God just revealed to him in that moment, that word that Steve brought to that guy wasn't authoritative. It wasn't binding on his conscience. But gee, it was helpful for this guy because it broke him and allowed him to go and have a better conversation with his ex-girlfriend than what he was planning. Or one final one. This is one that came up in my reading and research this week. There's a story of Charles Spurgeon, the famous Baptist preacher, who in the middle of one of his sermons just points to someone in the crowd and says, those gloves you were wearing you have not paid for. (laughs) And the person's like, it's true. (laughs) I haven't paid for the gloves. And he went off, apparently paid for the gloves, repented of his sin, but was really nervous about coming back to church the next week in case he might call out in front of the congregation all of the other sins in his life. But was that authoritative? No. Was it helpful? It certainly appeared to be helpful in that young man's life who made restitution, repentance for his sin. God brought to mind, revealed something to Spurgeon for a person's life that he used. Now, to be honest, I don't know if I would do that. I would be a bit scared of just calling someone out in the crowd, but Spurgeon was Spurgeon. So hopefully you see there are a couple of examples of how the gift of prophecy might function in a way that is not authoritative, but still helpful for the church. Now, for those of you who are feeling uncomfortable and nervous, let me give a few cautions to this. Firstly, and I know I've said this, but I need to say it a thousand times because I don't want to be misunderstood. Prophecy never undermines the authority of the Scriptures, nor the use of the Scriptures. Prophecy never undermines the authority or use of the Scriptures. For too many prophecies that I've heard in the past, there is a direct contradiction to the Word of God. Like, I've heard people say, God told me to divorce my spouse. No, He didn't. That wasn't God. God told you to be married committed and faithful to that person until you die. God does not contradict himself. The Spirit does not contradict himself. Or um, others who uh, have have, um, said things like, um, 
or, or it just seems really vague and, and almost like this vague version of the star signs. You're like, all right, great. I'm not sure if that's helpful or not. I feel like you could say that to anyone, be they Christian or not. I think when we say, God says that I'm going to do this, and it contradicts Scripture, we need to be very careful about where that word has come from. Because the Spirit of God is not the only person who reminds us of things. Remember that the enemy is like a prowling lion, and he is a liar. And he wants to lie to you. And he comes and he brings condemnation to you. The Spirit brings conviction. The enemy brings condemnation and lays guilt upon you. And we need to be careful about the messages that we hear. So the first caution is prophecy never undermines the use of the Scriptures. The other thing I've heard is that, uh, I heard one guy say to me once, oh, you know what, I don't, I don't read my Bible anymore because God just speaks directly to me. So I don't read my Bible. Right? That contradicts the gift of prophecy and the authority of the Scriptures in a Christian's life. Right? The, the gift of prophecy is subservient and under the authority of the Word. And it never undermines the authority or the use of the Scriptures. There are gifted prophets who will exercise their gifts better the more they read this book. So that's the first caution. Second caution is this. Don't pretend. Don't pretend you've got a word for someone when you don't. Right? Um, as I mentioned before, so many words of prophecy that I've heard seem so vague that they're almost the point of unhelpful. And what I think happens is sometimes we feel like there's this temptation with the gift of prophecy um, to want to appear really spiritual. And so we, we have this temptation to want to fabricate or manufacture something for a person. I don't think the gift of prophecy is like you switch it on, you switch it off. I think the gift of prophecy exercises more as the spirit apportions and enables that. It's more on the end of the supernatural than in the natural. And so with natural gifts, you can exercise them to various degrees of effectiveness because that's how God has wired you. A supernatural gift... It seems the Spirit empowers that as He sees fit in His timing. Like gifts of healings, I'm not sure the gift of prophecy you can just turn on and off at will because I feel like it's more at the supernatural end of the spectrum. I could be wrong about that. Hashtag experimental theology. It's probably really bad to put in a sermon, but anyway. Final caution. So, so don't pretend, right? Don't pretend you've got a word for someone when you don't. That's not helpful for your own heart. It's not helpful for, for other people. Final um, caution is this. Prophecy is not the chief sign of spiritual maturity. In fact, no spiritual gift is the chief sign of spiritual maturity. I think there is a temptation for us to view this gift as something that is a sign of someone who's really super spiritual. It's not the case. I know so many phenomenally, amazingly gifted people who are walking in outright disobedience of Jesus. The sign of spiritual maturity is what Onato reminded us last week. It's the fruit of the Spirit. So we like to say here at Anchor that we value the fruit of the Spirit above the gifts of the Spirit, and we value the gifts of the Spirit very highly. So don't use this gift 
as something that you use to pretend that you are super spiritual. That's not the gauge. It's not the measure of your maturity in the faith of your spirituality. So with those three cautions in mind, how might we use this? I think we grossly underestimate how God wants to use us by His Spirit to encourage other people, to bring a a scripture verse to bear upon their life in a really pointed way, to warn people of something. I think we underestimate how God wants to use us by His Spirit to do those things. Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 14, earnestly desire the gift of prophecy. And so pray for it. Ask that God might give it to you and exercise it. How do you do that? If you feel convicted, if you feel God brings something to mind for someone in a really clear way, what, what do you do? And I want to give you a couple of steps of what you might do. The first thing I would do is pray about it. God, is this me or is this you? Is this just me? Think, am I just being creative in my thinking here? Or is this something that you have brought to mind for this person? Pray about it. Secondly, weigh it against Scripture. Go to the Scriptures and say, all right, this is what I think it is. Does this contradict the Bible? Yes, forget it. Not to be used. Is it helpful? All right, maybe we can use this. Thirdly, go and check with someone. Someone who's maybe got the gift of discernment. Someone who's in spiritual leadership. Say, hey, look, this is what I think um, God has put on my heart to say to this person. Do you think this is going to be helpful? Is this going to be unhelpful? Ask for their assessment of it, that it might be tested. Fourthly, share it. If you believe that God has given you a scripture for someone or a warning for someone, share it with them, but don't walk up to them and say, thus says the Lord, and then proclaim your word, right? Go to the person and say, you know what? Um, I've been praying and just reflecting on scripture, and I feel like God has this verse for you. I don't know if it's relevant for you right now, but I just wanted to give you this verse. Or just send them the verse and let the Spirit do the work. Or come to them and say, um, God's really put me on your heart this week and, and I, feel like, I feel like this might be helpful for you and, and say what you feel God has laid on your heart. Don't claim that you are speaking as the very mouthpiece of God like an Old Testament prophet. Finally, don't feel like you, are be, you have to be the one that makes it happen. Right? Don't be the one who then runs around on the outsides of the scenes and tries to manufacture the fulfillment of your prophecy. Right? The Spirit of God doesn't need you to do that. He can, he's quite capable himself to make happen what he sees fit in people's lives. Now, I think many of us may be exercising the gift of prophecy without even being aware of it. If you encourage someone, if you warn someone, to you that might seem totally natural, but it is profoundly relevant in a person's life in a way that you may not even realize. And so maybe you've been exercising this gift without even realizing it. But I know that there are some of you at Anchor who are very gifted in this way. Some of you have brought specific things to our staff team in really helpful ways. All right, as I close, oh man, this running out of time. Let me go real quick here. All of the gifts of the Spirit are gifts of grace. 1 Peter 4 verse 10 says this, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Peter calls the gifts there God's varied grace. They're gifts of grace. Even the word, the word that we get our English word charismatic from, it's two Greek words joined together. The first word is charis, which means grace. 
The very nature of these gifts is that they're grace gifts. God has given them to you. You didn't earn it and you didn't deserve it. Have you ever stopped to wonder, why is it that I have the gifts and talents that I have? Wherever you are at you, on your faith journey this morning, be a Christian or not Christian, have you ever stopped to think, why is it that I have the gifts and talents that I have? Amazingly gifted at communications, really savvy in business, just overflowing with creativity, wonderful ability to teach things to people and see them flourish and grow and reach their potential. Why is it? That God has gifted you with the ability to bring healing and restoration to people's lives. You ever stop to wonder where those things come from? You know, the good news of the Christian message is that all of those things that you have, natural and spiritual, are gifts that God has given you. God made you that way. You are not the product of some random freak cosmic accident because that's what the secular worldview tells you. That this is a mistake. And if you're a mistake, then there's no one to thank and there's no purpose. But if you're created and designed this way, and that gives dignity, purpose, and meaning to everything we do in life, using all of the gifts that we've been given, using all of the talents that God has given us, But if God hasn't given them, then essentially we're just self-made accidents. And we deserve it all because we're self-built, we earned this, we worked hard for it. And that develops a sense of entitlement in our hearts. That this is something that we deserve and not a gift that we receive. I think we all do that, don't we? We take the good things that God has given us, the gifts that he's given us, and we use them for our own purposes. We reject the one who has given it for the good of others, and we use it for our own selfish advantages. It would be very easy for me to use the gift of leadership and communication to build my own platform. It would be very easy for the person who's gifted in business to use their savviness to amass a fortune for themselves that they hoard in selfishness and not in generosity of others. I think we're all guilty of doing that to a degree. That we use the things that God has given us as gifts, rejecting our maker and using that for selfish ends of ourselves. Sin could quite easily be called entitlement. That we believe that we deserve this, that we've earned this. A rejection of our God who's made us that way and designed us like that. And given us those gifts. And Jesus came to die on the cross for that ugly selfishness. It's the good news of the Christian message. That Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son as a gift. And in the same way that all of your... Spiritual gifts and natural talents are a gift from God. So is your forgiveness. So is your salvation. The message of Christianity is not that you earned your forgiveness by your merit and good works, but that God has given it as a gift, free. It's called grace. And it's the scandal of the Christian message. 
And so as we wrap up this morning and I invite the band to come up now and we respond in worship, I want to say to those of you who are here this morning, think about who you are and how God has made you. Ponder for a second where that came from. Is it satisfying for you that you are a freak cosmic accident? Or does it make more sense to you to say, I am a created person? That God has made me in his image and likeness. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. God has given me a gift and he has given me talents and he has wired me this way for the sake of others and for his glory. Maybe today is the day to stop living for self and recognize that everything that you have received is a gift from God, including the gift of Jesus, who died in our place for our sins to offer us new life. New purpose, new meaning. Would you allow the Holy Spirit to transform you as you begin with this truth that Jesus gave his life, that grace is given as a gift for you. And in light of that, use all of the gifts that God has given us for his glorious purposes for the sake of his church. We're going to respond. We're going to respond to this grace, this good news, this gift of God in a couple of ways. The first way we're going to do that is by the Lord's Supper. Up the back to the, to the sides, there are four stations, and there is bread and grape juice on those stations. And I invite you to come and dip the bread in the grape juice. If you love Jesus, dip it in the grape juice and eat it as a reminder that Jesus was a gift given for you. And we're going to worship and respond to God's goodness in singing songs now. So I'm going to invite you to stand as we pray. God, we thank you that you're a God who is gracious. We thank you that you have given us beyond what we deserve. You have given us your one and only son, Jesus, to die in our place for our sin. You have given us every good thing that we experience in life, our gifts, our talents. And God, I pray that in this church, you might help us to know how we can best use who you've made us, the gifts that you've given us to strengthen this church so that we may be built up, that we may be nourished, that we may be strengthened and we may be sent to this city for their good, for your glory. We pray all of this in Jesus' strong name and those who agreed said, Amen.